you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you over with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. Luke in chapter 8, uh, we, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke that we began uh, back in November. Now, we're going to be in 8, 26 through 39, just as kind of a looking ahead. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 8 of Luke. And then the first week of July, and all throughout July, we're going to do our annual Summer in Psalms. And so we'll be in the Psalms in July, and then in August, we'll jump back into the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so that's looking ahead. Today, 26 through 39 of chapter 8. Next week, we'll round out uh, this chapter before taking a little break. So, Luke 8, 26 39. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. Let's read this together. God's word says, Then they, Jesus and the disciples, sailed to the country of Gersenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon in the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of Gersenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I wonder, how do you react when you read and hear a story like this one? Maybe the demonic seems so foreign and strange to you that you never really think about it. Maybe stories like this one seem like quaint stories from a bygone era that the demonic was active, you know, in the ancient times, but not so much today. Or maybe like many moderns, you believe stories of the demonic to be sort of fairy tales or outdated superstitions, sounding more like science fiction than reality. Others, perhaps, hear a story like this one, nod their head, knowing demons to be a very real force in the world. Others still not only believe in demons in the presence of supernatural forces, but they have an unhealthy obsession with the topic. I wonder which one of those that I describe fits you. C.S. Lewis, he addressed this topic in the preface of his book, The Screwtape Letters, a book in which, of course, 
Lewis presents a fictional set of letters written by a senior demon named Screwtape to his junior demon nephew, Wormwood. And in the preface, Lewis says this about the interest of the demonic. Listen to what he said. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Of course, Lewis is right. Some never give any thought to the demonic. Others have an unhealthy obsession with them. The demons, say Lewis, they like both extremes. But wisdom lands somewhere in the middle. As a Christian, Lewis very much believed in demons and his screw tape letters while fictional, bear out an important truth, which is this. There's a war going on for the souls of people. There's a battle between two kingdoms, and only two, for the present allegiance and eternal destiny of every person alive. And thus, every person belongs to one of the two kingdoms, and must choose which they will bow knee to, which one they will serve. Joe Rigney, in his book about C.S. Lewis, says this. He says, in everything Lewis writes, his aim is to remind us that we are here and now, that God is here and now, that this God makes total demands of us, and that therefore we must choose to bow the knee or bow up, to surrender and join our wills to God's or resist his will and insist on our own way. This is the choice, he says, God or self, happiness or misery, heaven or hell, be happy with God's happiness or turn inward to the broken cisterns in your own soul. In this text that is before us this morning, what we have is much more than our friend Luke telling us about a cool event that happened in the life of our Lord. Rather, while this really and truly happened in history, just the way Luke says it, it was written down for us to teach us something about life in this world about Jesus, and about the kingdom that he brought with him. The story is what we might call an enacted parable. What Jesus does here is designed to show his compassionate care, of course, for this release of this man who is tormented by demons, but like a parable, to tell us profound truths about Christ and kingdom. In fact, this is what all miracles are intended to do. So in our time together, let's consider three points, and I'll just give them to you right away, okay? Three points. Easy enough. Number one, the battle. The battle. Number two, the victor. The victor. Number three, the choice. The battle, the victor, and the choice. So first, let's consider the battle. The scene opens with Jesus and his disciples landing safely to shore after the storm that Jesus stilled on the Sea of Galilee and they arrive at a place called Gersenes, which I noted last week is a Gentile area. And it, it, is, it, it isn't soon after Jesus steps foot onto shore that he meets a man from the city who has demons. And you note the plural, right? The man is in a bad way in every sense of the word unclean with a capital U. We are told that he has multiple demons. He's a Gentile. He didn't have a house but lived among the tombs. He was going around naked And as an aside, Luke tells us in verse 29 that the people of the town had previously tried to keep him under chain and shackle, but what did he do? 
He busted out of them suckers, right? He just break them and run into the desert. Mark says that no one had the strength to subdue him. And that he would cry out and he'd cut himself with stones. So safe to say this man is in a terrible, yes, pitiful state. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. Does anybody else think about that? No? Uh, when I read about this demonic, this demoniac. Do you remember Gollum? You guys are like, no, I'm not a nerd like you, Vaughn. But you know Gollum. Come on, you know Gollum. He was once a normal hobbit. His name was Smeagol until he became obsessed with the ring. And, and it corrupted him. He became physically distorted. He became hunched over. He developed a sort of disassociative personality disorder where remnants of his old self were warring with his new distorted self. He lived in a cave like this man. He ate raw fish and bats. And he was totally alone and alienated from his fellow hobbits. Well, this man was totally alone, alienated, living among the tombs, which were very much like caves. And he was overtaken by these demons. The man was still in there somewhere. But the demons had overpowered him and taken him over. He was enslaved by these demons. But unlike Schmeagel, we have no reason to believe that he brought this on himself due to any sin or anything like that. He was a victim of these demonic forces. But notice that Jesus is not the one who initiates conversation, is he? Rather, the demons see Jesus from a distance and they cry out. They scream and howl. They fall down on their face in a posture of submission, and they exclaim loudly, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, they say, do not torment me. All of this should remind us of an important truth about the way things are in the world. Luke is showing us, as he did with Satan's tempting of Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4, that there is a war going on at all times. That two kingdoms are clashing. That's what we see here. Whether we realize it or not, whether we think about it or not, there is a war going on for the souls of people. Do you realize this? There's a war going on for the souls of people. And it's battles between only two kingdoms, as I mentioned, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. Those are the only two options. There is no third kingdom. There's no space in between. There is no neutral, Sweden-esque-like place. Every person belongs to one kingdom or the other. And since, as the psalmist says, we're all brought forth in iniquity, this means that in our fallen state, we're naturally in the kingdom of darkness unless we respond to the gospel and are transferred to the kingdom of God's marvelous son. Satan and the demonic, they'll do whatever it takes to keep people bound. Do you know that? They'll do whatever it takes to keep people from the kingdom of Christ by whatever means necessary. And here's the thing. They don't always use what we see in this story. Demonic possession isn't the go-to tactic of the demonic in every place. You could talk to missionaries who go to less developed countries, and they will, in fact, tell you about what they have seen and heard that is in terms of demonic possession or using local religion or magic or idolatry. But we Americans think we don't see demonic activity very much, right? Which is why many people dismiss the demonic as archaic or exaggerated. But what, what if, can I suggest this? What if Satan and his band of jabronis don't need to use possession like this? Here or another, like they do in other countries, because 
Other things are working just fine. What if instead of possessions, they know that the American dream will do the trick? What if instead of a host of demons filling a man, they know alcohol or drugs or sex or comfort or ambition will do the job just as well? The forces of darkness, you know this, they're crafty. They're crafty. They are pragmatists. They will do whatever works to get people's attention and affection away from Christ. They will do whatever will work to keep people from serving the kingdom of God. Russell Moore says in his excellent book, Tempted and Tried, the demonic powers have had millennia to observe human nature, but that's not enough. The spiritual powers out there are expert cosmic farmer ranchers and are customizing a temptation plan that fits the way your desires particularly work. They notice what turns your head, what quickens your pulse. Like the Roman guard feeling around with a spike in one hand on the Lord Jesus' arm, seeking his vein under the skin, the demonic beings are marking out your weak points, sizing you up so that they might crucify you. They'll find what you want, and they'll give it to you. And see, isn't that the insidiousness of it? We think of the demonic, we think of their tactics for war, and we think only of overtly evil things. Or like head spinning and vomiting and levitating like in the movie Exorcist. You remember that one? But if they can get you to focus on using, get this, good things in the wrong way, that's just as well. As long as they could dehumanize you like they did him or get you to dehumanize other, then the job is getting done. What does Jesus do for the man in this story? He takes someone who is living less than human and he restores his humanity. Is that not what he does? The difference is night and day from the beginning of this story to where it ends. This is Jesus' goal, do you know this, with every person. Jesus' goal with people is to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom and gift them the Holy Spirit and commands of Scripture so they begin to live life the way that they were created before Genesis 3. That's his goal. Jesus wants you to be fully human. He wants to restore the full image of God that has been marred in you by sin. But Satan wants to keep you bound. He wants you to live less than human. Early church father Tertullian said it well. He said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. And thus, the degeneration of man, the distortion of the divine image through sin, is a direct attack on the glory of God. Satan knows this. Which is why this is exactly what he wants and what he's trying to do. So we must understand, sin isn't just overt badness. But it's using the good gifts of God in the wrong way, which makes you live less than you were created to be. Money isn't bad, is it? Is it? Pleasure isn't bad. Marriage isn't bad. Sex isn't bad. Hobbies aren't bad. Work isn't bad. Material possessions aren't bad. But when you use them against God's expressed commands, when you turn those into ultimate things, when you give your full devotion to them, when you pursue them and not Christ, when they are objects of your desire, when they are what defines your life, well then, you've not only done exactly what Satan wants you to do, but you've devalued yourself and those who are, you are using in order to get what you want. 
As long as you are pursuing your desires in unfettered manner, that's all that matters to the enemy. And so the irony of this, don't you see? You could look put together and well-to-do and impressive and picturesque and successful by the world's standards, but what God sees is someone hanging out in tombs, naked, alone, and bound in chains. And you think you're just killing it. But really, those things are killing you. Says Screwtape in letter 28, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circles of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. But it isn't just this type of thing the demonic will use. As said, whatever it is that will quicken your pulse or turn your head or get you to live as less than what God created you to be, they'll use it. What we need to remember, as this scene vividly shows us, is that we are at war. Every person you meet is in one kingdom or the other. Do you realize this? And every person you meet, regardless of what kingdom they're in, is a target for the demonic. You, friend, are at war. Do you realize this? You can speak. Do you realize this? Don't get too Baptist on me, all right? Do you think about this often? Do you take stock of how you use things and treat people? Do you sit and consider what gets your heart pumping? What you spend your time daydreaming about? What you give priority to? Are you living to pursue the likeness of Christ or some other end? Do you make your daily work to do battle against the darkness? Well, the forces of darkness, they sure enough are doing battle. Whether you fight back or not, are you making war? Well, you know, this fight, it seems daunting, doesn't it? How can we make war and win? Well, this brings us to point number two. Point number two, the victor. If you look down at your scriptures, you look at the scenes that surround this one. Just look at the scenes that surround this one. You'll notice a theme. In all of them, Jesus is exercising authority over something that threatens people. You notice that? Darrell Bach says, all forces, nature, demons, disease, and death that could be regarded as stronger than humanity and that stand opposed to God as rivals to his power are rendered impotent in this section by Jesus. And so, adds Bach, it is shown, and this is important, that relationship with Jesus brings security. Similarly, James Edwards says, both the narrative of the storm and this one dramatically portray the power and compassion of Jesus to rescue people from chaos and destruction, whether in nature or in human nature. You know, the most striking thing about this scene, like the one last week, is Jesus' power and authority. Again, Jesus says nothing to, to the demoniac until the demoniac approaches and speaks to him. It is the demon who falls down and cries out and recognizes Jesus and his authority. 
It is the demon who falls flat before Jesus. It is the demon who asks Jesus if he has come to torment him. It is the demon who has to ask permission to go into the pigs because they know what Jesus is going to do to them. They're afraid of Jesus. This is how powerful Jesus is. The demoniac, they see Jesus. The demons, they see Jesus. They fall. They beg. They cry out. They are afraid of what Jesus will do. Even the sight of Jesus frightens them and causes them to tremble. And you know, there's a reason why Luke makes sure to note that the man, while he is possessed by these demons, is breaking chains and ropes and no one can bind him. With the demons, the man is supernaturally powerful. No group of humans can overcome him. But then add this to what the demon says his name is when prompted by Jesus. What does he say? Legion. Legion is a Roman military designation for the largest military unit, which would be around 6,000 foot soldiers. This means that there are potentially thousands of demons inhabiting this man. So Luke shows us that the demons are powerful, more powerful than men, and they number in the thousands. So what do you have? You have a battle here, one versus thousands. And you hear that and you think, that's hardly a fair fight. And you'd be right. The demons don't stand a chance. What happens when they see Jesus? They cower and beg. The demon-possessed man and the townspeople who tried to subdue him were outmatched and outpowered. But when Jesus shows up, the tables turn, don't they? I think of a scene, if, in case you didn't think I was a big enough nerd before, in the Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, where the heroes are they're trapped in this room. And the door is shut and it's sealed and they're hiding and this army, seemingly impossible to destroy robots that are called dark troopers are coming for them. The heroes are outmatched, they're outgunned, everything they try to do to fight these menacing droids fail miserably. They're just too strong. All of it seems hopeless and helpless and they're sure to meet their end. And then Luke Skywalker shows up. And you know what happens? Now the fight's unfair in the opposite direction. Skywalker makes quick work of the powerful army in short order. He doesn't break a sweat. So this evil and powerful army is rendered impotent and kind of pathetic when someone with real power shows up. Luke wants you to know Legion is powerful, but he wants you to know even more that the demonic isn't even in Jesus' league. Throw, throw however many demons you want. It doesn't matter. Jesus will make them cower in fear at the sight of him. It's one versus thousands, and yet, despite their numbers, they know who is in charge, don't they? They know who possesses true authority. The demon's saying, I beg you, don't torment me, is straight up, no contest, admission of their subservience to Jesus. You add to that the title they know of Jesus as the son of the most high God, and there's no doubt who's in charge here and who possesses the most power and authority and sovereignty. And again, as we mentioned last week, we might imagine that Satan and his demons are an equal and opposite force to Christ and his kingdom, but they aren't. It's, it's not a fair fight. It's not equals trying to best each other. It isn't level playing field. It's the sovereign God of all things against a creature. It's like an experienced gardener with a shovel in his hand against a little snake who's invaded his field. He has a little trouble crushing its head. 
The snake may be dangerous to some, but this time, his time is short. And he's dispatched quickly and easily. Jesus is so sovereign and powerful that he even uses the bad that the demons intend for good. Do we not see that here? And do we not see that supremely in the cross? The demons know their time is short, don't they? They beg Jesus to not send them into the abyss. And in Matthew's account of this story, they ask, have you come to torment us before the day? Which is another way of asking if Jesus has come to destroy them before judgment day. Even they know that they will lose and will be vanquished fully and finally at the end of the age. But that doesn't mean they won't try to do as much damage as possible to people. Even an army that knows it's losing a war can try to inflict as much damage as possible before they meet their full and final defeat. This is what Satan and his demons are doing right now. They know that Jesus is greater. They know that they have been defeated through the cross and resurrection. They know that one day and one day soon, they'll be cast out for good. So you and I live in an age where they are desperate. Everyone knows the most dangerous animals are the ones who are cornered and wounded. That's the current state of the kingdom of darkness. They are desperate, and they will do whatever they can to get to you. If you're not a Christian, they'll do whatever they can that you won't give your allegiance to Jesus. And they will do whatever they can, if you are a Christian, to keep you from giving too much of yourself to Christ. They'd love if you were distracted like the soil of verse 14. But here's what I want you to get in all of this. Whatever it is that you feel like binds you, whatever sin it is that you feel like you can't shake, whatever anxiety or worry that has your attention, whatever it is that you are pursuing that you feel like, if I just had this, you would be whole. Whatever good thing that you have made an ultimate thing, whatever it is for you that is stealing your attention and affection from Jesus, know this. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. He is greater. There's nothing that binds you, friend, that he can't deliver you from. Do you know this? But we aren't even halfway through Luke's gospel, and we have already seen Jesus defeat Satan in the wilderness, heal lepers with a word, bring a young man back from the dead, tell a raging sea to be quiet, and it became glass in an instant, and now he exercises thousands of demons with one word, go. If you're on his side, what is it that you can face that he can't overcome? What is it? Look what we're talking about here. Hey, your real talk, all I really want, you know, peel back the curtain, my goal in my ministry is for you to just be astounded by Jesus. Do you know that? That's all I want. My main concern isn't that every seat in this room be full. Isn't that budget will be gangbusters? Isn't that the building will be paid off in short order? It isn't that we would have million programs or great worship experience, whatever that means. It's that you would be thunderstruck by the beauty and glory of Christ. You can think, you can think I'm a donkey who dresses funny, but as long as you see the greatness and glory of Christ, I'm doing just fine. Because when you see that, everything will change for you. Every chain that binds you, that you're impotent to break, he could tear asunder. Everything you chase that you're hoping to fulfill will never do the trick. Only Jesus can make you whole. 
Every sin you pursue that is marring the image of God in you and stripping you of your humanity can be defeated with your attachment and reliance on this powerful Christ. You need to know this. And you need to be reminded of it often because you'll forget as I sometimes forget. And you'll be bogged down and you'll feel hopeless, but not if you go to Christ and go to Christ and go to Christ and go to Christ and see His beauty and rely on His strength. Friends, there is a war to be fought and it's raging in and around us and it's happening whether you like it or not. And if we aren't fighting, then we sure enough aren't winning. A war is being fought desperately by the wounded kingdom of darkness and it's being waged on you and your family and your marriage and your church and your community. Are you fighting back? I have some bad news. If you fight by your own power, you don't stand a chance. But I have some good news. If you fight by your own power, you don't stand a chance. And you heard that right. The bad news is if we rely on our own strength, as we all tend to do, as we all want to do, then we will lose. But the good news is we don't need to be strong. Not on our own. Don't you see? That's good news, isn't it? All of our lives, through all kinds of different mediums, we're told how we are enough, aren't we? How we just, all we need is us. How we just need to be true to ourselves, how we just tap into our inner potential, we can overcome and accomplish anything. That's all Disney and social media tell us. Isn't that true? How many princess movies have the message that we're just enough? How many cheesy Instagram quotes just tell us how awesome we are? And even the media under the guise of Christian does this sometimes. Do you guys remember that New York Times bestseller, Girl, Wash Your Face? Do you remember that by Rachel Hollis? You know what she says in there? She says, you are meant to be the hero of your own story. You, and she's not alone in saying this stuff. You and only you are ultimately responsible for you becoming how happy you are. You should be the first of your priorities. What slavery is it to have to be enough? To need to be the hero. <laughs> to need to be the center of everything. If we just think we're awesome and strong, then we won't only be bound by trying to be good enough. We'll be helpless to win against much powerful forces than us. But here's some good news. Can I tell you guys something? You're not enough. And you don't need to be. Because Jesus is. And look at him here. You see him? Potentially thousands of demons tremble and beg in terror just by seeing him. He's more than enough. Isn't that freeing? You don't need to fight on your own. You aren't left in the lurch to fend for yourself. Fend for yourself, you'll lose. Try to be your own might, you'll fail. Try to go nose to nose with Satan and his flunkies, you'll be helpless. But the Christ who demons see and shudder, who cried for mercy, who begged for permission to enter into filthy pigs is offering to be your champion. Then guess what? He'll be your victory because he won and will win. You lean on him. You depend on the indwelling spirit. You can gain ground with every battle for the rest of your life. As one commentator said, the terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Here is victory, 
and his name is Jesus. Do you see how powerful he is? He defeated sin and death and offers release from your bonds. Will you go to him and have him be your champion? And you can say with Charles Wesley, you know the old hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus secured your freedom. And the same act, he caused the demon's defeat to be inevitable. And they know it. They know their doom is sure. Which is why they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss was the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. It also appears to be a place where the demonic would be kept. And check this out, it was associated with the sea. The demons are afraid that they'd be confined in the abyss before the day of judgment and would rather inhabit a bunch of pigs than go into the deep. And of course, the sea was what Jesus just showed his utter command. Yes, over in the previous scene, and the demons asked to go into the pigs. Jesus allows it, and note they're completely and entirely under the command of the Lord. So they enter in these thousands of pigs, and where they end up anyway? Into the sea. <laughs> and the pigs are drowned. And Luke doesn't tell us what happened to the demons. It's entirely possible that since the sea was associated with the abyss, that they are destroyed and they perished. What's important, though, is the power of Sovereignty and authority of Jesus is on full display. But it isn't without cost, was it? This brings us to our third and final point, the choice. The choice. So the demons are vanquished by Jesus as a preview of what will, he will do throughout the rest of the age until they are finally and fully vanquished at the end of time. And we have several reactions to this, don't we? The herdsmen see these pigs running down the, hall, the hill, rush into the water, and they drown. And so the herdsmen, they go into the city, and they tell everyone what happened, right? So the town folk come to see what happened, and they find Jesus there, and the man who had formerly been demon-possessed, but he looks very different, doesn't he? We're meant to see, Luke wants us to see this drastic change. Look down at your text. Whereas he was, once had demons, now they're gone from him. Whereas he was once naked, now he's clothed. Where he was once alone, now he's with others. Where he once had no home and lived among the tombs, at the end of the story, he is, has a home. Where he was once roaming, now he's seated. Where he was once out of control, now he's in sound mind. Where he was once crying at the sight of Jesus, now he sits comfortably at Jesus' feet. Encounters with Jesus change people, don't they? We're meant to see that here. You, you can't encounter Jesus and remain the same. When he transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, you're transformed. You're no longer naked before the throne, but clothed in his righteousness. You're no longer corrupt in mind, but you're given the mind of Christ. You're no longer alone, but placed into a family called the church. You're no longer roaming around, tossed and fro by the ever-changing seas of the world, but are safely at Jesus' feet, learning from him, and striving to obey. You're no longer afraid of holiness, but lean towards Christ with reverential fear. You're no longer an enemy of God, but adopted at his beloved son or daughter. But not everybody embraces Christ, do they? People of the village 
are filled with the same kind of wrong fear that the disciples had on the Sea of Galilee. They don't rejoice that the man has been restored and saved. They instead are angry that some pigs are destroyed. They, they don't care about the man. They care about their pocketbooks. They, they don't like what Jesus' continued presence in their village might mean and what it might cost them, so they ask him to leave. The, the man who has been freed, however, he just wants to be with Jesus. He just wants to be near him, even if it costs him. All he wants is Jesus. Whereas the demons beg to be left alone by him, the freedman begs in verse 38 that he be allowed to go with him. Here are your two choices. Only two choices. Either reject Jesus and continue to live in and serve the kingdom of darkness or submit to Christ, give him your allegiance, be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and thus be transferred to the kingdom of God. There's only two choices. That's it. Everyone is currently in one of these kingdoms. Which is it for you? Would you be the man sitting healed at Jesus' feet, or would you prefer he'd leave you alone? As long as your life would remain undisturbed and not cost much. Ray Ortland profoundly comments on this passage. He says, there is no temperament Jesus cannot control. There's no madness he can't soothe. There's no darkness he can't illuminate. There's no chains he cannot break. There's no raving he cannot calm. There's no shame he can't dignify. There's no nakedness he can't clothe. There's no legion he can't command. And when he proved his power, restoring this dear man who had suffered so much for so long, sending the demons in the nearby herd of pigs, the people began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Jesus forced on them a choice, his transformation or their pigs. They preferred their pigs. Sure, their world was dysfunctional, but it was theirs. It was familiar. They preferred it undisturbed, and so do many people today. The people of Gersenis cared more about the economy than they did people. They cared that it would cost to have Jesus around. And that's what people keeps people away from Jesus even now. It's too much to follow him. We'll take Jesus, sure, but only if he mostly leaves us alone. Only if his aim for our lives aligns with the ones we already have. Only if he doesn't ask too much and demand too much or want too much of us. Only if we can be Christian on our terms. And it is that posture that had damned the Gersenis, and it is the posture that is damning people today. But if we know Christ, if we truly have given him our allegiance, then what we will want is not for him to not bother us too much, lest attachment to him be too costly. We stay instead with the healed man as we have been healed from sin and death. Let me sit at your feet. Let me go with you regardless of what it costs. And we thus let him define who we are henceforth. But if Jesus and his kingdom defines us, then we'll do what the man in this story does after Jesus saves him. We'll want to learn from him. Imaging him more and more, we will use our lives so that others can hear what he has done. Do you notice that? The man wants to go with Jesus. He literally begs to go with him. But this time Jesus says no, doesn't he? Jesus says, stay here, declare how much God has done for you. Then what does it say? Do you notice? It says he obeyed Jesus and he proclaimed what? How much Jesus had done for him. 
Did you notice that Jesus tells him to tell people what God has done for him? And then it says he told people that what Jesus had done for him because they are synonymous, they're inseparably linked. But don't you see in this man a model of what you should be doing if you've been saved by Jesus? The man didn't just narrate what happened, you understand. He proclaimed, he declared what Jesus had done. He couldn't help it. He obeyed, yes, but he wanted to tell people about Christ. Friend, can I ask you, are you leveraging your life for the gospel? Are you proclaiming the kingdom to those you know? Do they see a change in you because of your encounter with this glorious Christ? Are you giving yourself utterly to this task? I said earlier, Satan hates, and this isn't breaking news, Satan hates people bringing glory to God. He hates it. Is he getting what he wants in the way you live your life? Or are you making Satan angry like you should? Truth is, Jesus calls everyone to this task. Some are to travel with Jesus away from home like the disciples. Others are to remain where they are and testify to him where they live. Either way, every disciple must leverage their lives for the kingdom of Christ. Do you know this? You know, after service, as Nathan mentioned, we're going to hear from the Lovitz, and they have leveraged their lives for the gospel by giving up the safety of American life to go to a foreign culture to give people who have never heard about Jesus the gospel. And you know what? Maybe Jesus is calling some of you to do that too. Maybe some of you students, Jesus is calling for you to serve him overseas long term after you graduate. Maybe some of you adults, Jesus is calling you to spend retirement on the mission field instead of on a luxury liner in the panhandle. But for others, Jesus is calling for you to leverage your life where you are. He has a job for you. He has you in the job you have, in the neighborhood you live, in the sphere of influence that you have with the family you have, with the friends you have, so that you can use all of that for Christ and kingdom. You know, make no mistake, your community is in the grip of the kingdom of darkness. And people you see every day are in chains. And it would be a shame if those of us who have been freed by Christ remain content to hide our light under a basket in the safety of of lives centered around ourselves. Friend, do you realize that no one can reach the people you can because no one on earth is positioned the way you are positioned? Do you realize that? And, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been commissioned. Do you realize that too? Have you encountered this glorious Christ? Do you see how beautiful and powerful he is? Do you see that it cost him rejection in a cross to free you so that you could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's glorious son? Do you see that it cost him to secure your pardon and break your chains so that you could be free and that he is with you to help you win victories over this present darkness. And if you see all of that, shouldn't you live for him then?
And shouldn't you tell of his glory? Don't give Satan what he wants. Use your life for Christ. Pursuing his image and dispelling the darkness that exists in this world. Make war. Push back against the darkness in your life and in your sphere of influence. We get the distinct privilege of being emissaries for the kingdom of Christ, but only a vapor's worth of life to do it. So let's be faithful ones for his glory and his fame.